MFA writers. I'm Jared McCormick. As an emerging fiction writer, I particularly love reading debut fiction novels and collections because I feel like they're examples of where I'm trying to get to as a writer. They say the first one's the hardest, and so I'm always mining debut books for clues on how the writer got there. One of the best debuts I've read this year is If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffrey. The book does some really interesting things with POV, moving between characters while telling some stories in second person and others in first and third. It also plays with tense, moving between past and present. And then, of course, there's the form. Is this a collection of stories or a novel? Most people are referring to it as a linked collection, but I feel comfortable calling it either. I'm also comfortable calling it brilliant. There are so many exciting risks being taken here that it reminds me as an emerging writer that we don't have to play it safe. And on top of all of that, it's just a really beautiful story about the gray areas and identity and what it's like trying to make it in a world in which whiteness and wealth seem to matter more than anything else. I highly recommend it, and I'm excited to announce that we're going to be giving away a couple of copies to some lucky listeners thanks to the kind people at MCD Books and FSG. You can enter this giveaway up to three times to increase your chances of winning. Here's one you can do right now. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, screenshot it, and send it to us via email at mfawriterspodcast at gmail.com or DM it to us on social media. The other two entries will take place on Instagram and Twitter, so head over there and follow us for instructions. We're at mfawriterspodcast on Instagram and at mfawriterspod on Twitter. You can find those links in the show notes on our website. You can enter the giveaway via review screenshot on Instagram or on Twitter, or you can do all three for three entries. We'll announce the winner on our next episode, November 22nd. Good luck to all of you. And as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Nikki Lissy. Nikki is a third year MFA candidate at the University of South Florida, where she writes fiction and nonfiction. She is blind, and her thesis is a young adult novel that follows the life of 17 year old Emma Reynolds as she adjusts to her blindness and sets out on a path of self discovery and acceptance of her disability. Today, Nikki is going to read a short essay she wrote titled, This is What Real Freedom Is. It doesn't matter how many times the essayist, the blind essayist, tries to write what it's like being in the driver's seat or how she is fascinated by writing what she doesn't know. She imagines drivers place their noses to the dashboard while driving on long roads as straight and shapeless as frail, and it won't matter how many times she crafts sighted personas to fulfill that sensation because she is absolutely bound to get it wrong before she gets it right. For the blind essayist has never done this thing. And it won't matter that she's written enumerated and segmented and triptych essays set in cars in which the essayist was an eager passenger. Being a passenger means her mind can run wild in ways it is not allowed to when the essayist is walking. Because when she is walking, she must be fully present and concentrating on the sounds around her, the sidewalk in front of her, the sun's position on her face, 
the texture of the cracks in the concrete. But in a car, none of this matters, and the essayist often pretends to gaze out the window at sprawling fields of flowers, even though, for all she knows, it could just be an open road. And it won't matter that on her 16th birthday, the essayist was full of joy. But the one truth the essayist held on to was, "I want to drive. I want to drive. I want to just drive." And six years later. On a balmy April night in the parking lot of On the Border, her stomach full of tacos and sweet tea, and so many butterflies fluttering around with the spring air blowing. On this night, the essay's best family friends hands her the keys, and she joyously jingles them around, recalling when she was a small child and often shook her mom's keys in this fashion, as she would shout, "Who wants to go to the store with me?" Just like her parents, her sighted parents always did. And now the essayist plunges the key into the ignition, her left hand vibrating with the buzz of the engine as it rumbles to life. And the essayist shouts with glee, and it's the most powerful feeling in the world as that just released Carrie Underwood song burbles through the speakers. And the essayist will inevitably try to hit those insanely high notes. And then her family friend takes the wheel because it wouldn't have ended well for anyone if the blind essayist drove any further. And in this moment, the essayist is perfectly happy to sit in the passenger seat and sing along with Carrie, knowing she will never be able to emulate the classic Carrie wail, no matter how many times she tries. The way her voice rises, 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 falls, and rises again—so beautiful and fragile and raw and real and full of right power, just like the essayist feels in this moment, full of control. Because what matters is that for one glorious moment, this essayist held the power of freedom in her hands in a way she never has. Nikki, that was awesome. I love this piece, and I loved hearing you read it. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. I love talking about writing and process, and I have been looking forward to this for a long time. <laughs> I've been looking forward to it too. So thank you so much.、Um, Okay, so before we get to the writing and the MFA, I feel like I should mention that Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida recently, and Tampa, where you live and your MFA program is located, was hit pretty hard. So, how are you doing? Are you, I hope your friends and everyone is safe. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, we're all doing well. Luckily, we were very concerned that Hurricane Ian was going to really affect Tampa, and it wound up shifting south at the very last minute. And I extend my most sincere condolences to anybody south of Tampa who was affected. I've been trying to think of ways to help because I just feel so bad for all of those people. But everybody in Tampa and at USF is doing well, and we're just hoping for clear skies the rest of the semester. Yeah, fingers crossed. That would be great. All right, so let's talk about the piece you read. This this is what real freedom is, which was published at Hobart. So I just want to pause here for a moment to say that in solidarity with those impacted by the recent events that took place with Hobart, Nikki recently was able to rehome this essay at HaveHasHad.com. If you don't know about the drama over at Hobart, I'll let you Google it. But Nikki would like to thank Erin Birch and the editorial team for making this possible, and she is so thankful her work has found such an incredible home. So, like I said, first off, it's a beautiful essay, and like any great piece of literature, it gives the reader the opportunity to experience the world in a different way, if for just a moment. So, tell us about the inspiration for this piece, and 
what you hope readers' experience will be when reading it. Absolutely. This piece came from a night that was really unexpected in many ways. And it was born of the experience of getting to drive a car that one of my best family friends was driving. And we had gone to dinner as we did once a month when I was an undergrad at the University of North Texas. And I remember it was a random Wednesday night in the middle of April. And he said, here are the keys, get us home. And of course he was joking. He wasn't intending for me to actually drive us all the way down the highway. But I drove through that parking lot of On the Border, which was empty. And he was telling me, go right, go left. And that night, after I got back home and was reading essays for a workshop that I was in the next day, I came across a nonfiction piece by a writer named Spencer Hyde, who was a PhD student at UNT while I was an undergrad. And his essay was called This is How You Hold a Beating Heart. And it's a beautiful piece. I don't know where it was published, but as part of an independent study that I was doing with my mentor, Dr. Jill Talbot, she had me read this piece because we were trying to figure out one sentence essays versus rated essays versus enumerated essays. And the independent study was really trying to figure out how form translates or does not translate in Braille the way that it might on the print page. Oh, uh huh. And through reading Spencer's essay, I realized that I really wanted to try something similar, but I didn't know what I was going to write about. And then the next morning I woke up and I started thinking about how much fun the night before it had been. And I turned on the brand new Carrie Underwood song at the time, which was Cry Pretty. And I just started writing. And I don't even know how to explain how quickly this essay burst out of my fingertips. <laughs> it just poured out. And the first draft was really long. I mean, it was much, much longer yeah. than this. But it was still one sentence. And I said, Oh my gosh. And then I sent it to Spencer because as part of our independent study, I was working with a couple of the PhD students on form as well as with Dr. Talbot and just getting a lot of different perspectives. And he said, this is great. Let's talk about maybe getting this ready for publication. And between him and Kim Garza, who just released a novel and Dr. Talbot, and Clint Peters, I was able to really work on this piece for a month, I would say. And then at the end of the spring semester, Dr. Talbot and I sent it to four journals and Hobart said yes. And I'm still thankful to this day because it's been such a great experience. And that was really my introduction into creative nonfiction. And I dabble in both genres now in fiction and nonfiction, but that was really how I got started in the nonfiction world and in the writing world in general. It was my first publication and it will forever be one of my favorite essays. Yeah, when I read it the first time, the form was one of the things that really jumped out to me because the essay is a little over 500 words, but it it's like all one sentence, which I think really kind of captures that feeling of energy that you're describing. But were there difficulties in 
revising and editing a piece that was all one sentence? Like, what made you choose to do this? And what made you choose to stick with it during the revision process? I think for me, this essay was always meant to be one sentence. But I definitely, when I woke up that morning to write this piece, I did not think to myself, I'm going to write a one sentence essay that has all of these elements of energy, it was more, I want to try this form and see what happens. And I actually was thinking it might not work. I wasn't really <laughs> sure what was going to happen. And then when it just burst onto the page, I thought this could only be one sentence. And there was never any question in my mind after that point that it was supposed to be a one sentence essay. And I also really love the one sentence form because in Braille, the way that Braille typically reads is from left to right, line by line. And the one sentence essay reads beautifully in Braille more than many other form with the exception, of course, of a traditional narrative form. But I really loved that from day one, this form clicked in Braille in a way that the others, such as enumerated and segmented and triptych, did not always click. And I feel like with the one sentence essay, it really was a case of content influencing form. And it doesn't always work, you know, and I think that's the thing that is interesting. With this essay, there was absolutely some difficulty in revising because my first draft and my second draft and even my third draft were just out of control, you know, just <laughs> so many words and M dashes. And it, it just was interesting to see how the longer it got, the less control I had over the language. Oh, yeah. And then eventually what I started doing is I would read it aloud, always while listening to music, because Music is a huge part of my writing process, and it really helped to see the pacing and where I naturally took a breath. And that's where I started inserting M dashes and the few commas that are in the piece. And I remember having a conversation with Spencer and Kim as we were meeting to revise the piece. And we were talking about, you know, if I add a semicolon, is it still one sentence? And I think ultimately we decided that it was not. So I decided not to add the semicolon in the end. So just really at the end, it was thinking about those really, really small details to make sure that it could still retain its form, but also be legible and readable to somebody who doesn't know what a one sentence essay is and what that form is supposed to do. Yeah. I, yeah. There, it's it's a difficult form, I think, because I do read them sometimes and I maybe will stumble in the middle or feel feel the one sentence form, you know, like as a reader, I don't want to feel the one sentence form. I just want it to feel natural. Right. I think you accomplished that in this. There was never Thank a moment you. where I like stumbled and noticed it until the end. I was like, oh, wow, that was all one sentence. It's a challenge reading it aloud, too, in terms of uh -huh. your breath control and right. the way that you speak these phrases. It's definitely a form. It's a long workout in some ways. It's yeah. like if a singer is trying to hit a really high note, it feels like this essay is me hitting high notes until the very end. But it's so fun and it's so rewarding. And I just hope that readers take away the freedom of 
not just this specific experience, but also what it's like living in a world blind and getting to do something that I think a lot of people might take for granted, which is, you know, the act of being able to just get in a car and drive anywhere you want to go. I certainly am able to get anywhere I want to go, but I couldn't ever decide to take a spontaneous road trip without some serious planning because I don't have the ability to just jump in a car and go. So I really hope that readers will be thankful, you know, for experiences that they have and will also realize that it's it's really a unique experience and a wonderful experience when a blind person such as myself gets to experience a fully realized dream. Well, one of the really interesting things um, that this piece explores, I think, is what writers are supposed to write about. So we often hear as writers that we should write what we know. But in this essay, you seem to push back on that. When you write, it doesn't matter how many times the essayist, the blind essayist, tries to write what it's like being in the driver's seat or how she is fascinated about writing what she doesn't know because she is absolutely bound to get it wrong before she gets it right for the blind essayist has never done this thing. So I'm curious to hear your opinion. Do you think that idea of writing what you know is a bit reductive? You know, I think it's interesting to think about this now because I would have answered this question differently even two years ago. I think I think in some ways, writing what you know can be extremely useful. With my novel, I actually, the first draft was set in California, which is where I was born and spent the first eight years of my life. But I realized that if I changed the setting to Texas, I could do so much more with that setting because I spent most of my formative years in Austin, Texas. And so placing the setting somewhere where I am super familiar was really helpful. But I also think that if we only write what we know, we're missing out on opportunities one of my professors, Jake Wolf, talks about this a lot with using research to bring forth a more fully realized world, specifically in fiction. But I think it applies just as much to nonfiction. For example, you know, I've never driven. So anytime I'm writing characters that drive, there's a lot of conversations that go into that and a lot of research that goes into that type of work. And so I think that there are things that I want to know. And I'm always, I think the work of the essay is to write into what we don't know and to constantly be questioning those things and to try to circle it back to what we do know and to try to find the place where those things meet in the middle. I want to go back a little bit and talk about your process a bit. So you told me before the interview that in your writing, and especially your fiction, you use research to access the sighted experience and world. So Tell us a bit about the research that you do and how it gets integrated into your writing process. Absolutely. So I think my first and oldest form of research is through reading books in the genre that I'm writing in. So when I was growing up, my parents would read to us every single night. And I, I have an identical twin and she's also blind. So that's why I say us when I'm talking about this. And they would read all kinds of books. And one of the books that I remember so clearly is this incredible little book called Hailstones and Halibut Bones by Mary O'Neill. And this book went through and it described all of the colors 
of the rainbow, but it paired every single color with a touch, a taste, a smell, a feel, an experience. And it really was just the way that I learned about colors. And then as I continued to grow up, I started reading books like the Click series and the Babysitter's Club and all of these books that really I was watching. And I, I didn't know this at the time, but I realized now I was studying how authors write the sighted experience and write these characters that were unique in many ways, but also were like my family and friends and people that I grew up with in the sense that they could see. And so when I really started writing, I found myself emulating what these writers were doing in terms of imagery and character description and the ways that they were relying on imagery to really bring forth a more fully realized setting and world. That was my first form, I think, of research, even though I had no idea that that's what I was doing. And so when I started writing creatively myself and I wanted to try new things, I leaned really heavily on imagery and on also conversations I'd have with my family and my friends about what do people see and what does this look like and what does that look like and just really asking a lot of questions to try to experience what my character might experience. And now I still do this for sure, but I also, I, I have begun to really dig much deeper into internet research, specifically when I'm writing about driving. In my novel, one of the most important scenes is a car accident. And thankfully, that's not something that I've ever experienced or seen, but I know that it's something that I needed to make 100% sure that I got right. And I Googled a lot of what that was going to look like and how how a person could lose their sight in a car accident and the ways that that could happen, which was not fun research to do by any means. It was actually really difficult to learn about the terrible things that could happen to you in a car, but it taught me a lot for crafting that scene. And of course I have trusted readers who I run things by who are also writers in my MFA program and my thesis advisor and thesis committee and professors who I've asked very specifically in no uncertain terms to tell me if I got something wrong and so that I can then go back and try to do more research in order to get it right. So let's talk about your thesis a little bit. While the story itself is fictional, it seems to pull from your own lived experience. So as we mentioned in your bio, it's a young adult novel that follows the life of 17-year-old Emma Reynolds as she adjusts to her blindness and sets out on a path of self-discovery and acceptance of her disability. So I'd love to hear more about that project and what your process has been like when telling a story that's fictional but draws on real experience. Definitely. So the thesis itself, actually, this is a really wild story. I actually came into the USF MFA program as a nonfiction writer, and I wrote about 45 pages of an essay collection that I still have, and I'm still going to be working on at different points. But 
I have always wanted to write a young adult novel. And in the spring of 2022, I took two classes at the same time that both really kind of changed the direction that I was going in with my thesis. The first class was Jared Rosalo's Writing for Children and Young Adults class. And the second class was John Fleming's Writing Fiction Workshop. And in these two classes, I was experimenting with different types of writing and fiction and things that I had not done in a very, very long time. I hadn't taken a fiction workshop since 2018. And it started as a short story. And I didn't really intend to write a blind character, actually, in my fiction. That was something that I had actually tried not to do for a very long time because I always thought that writing fiction was my chance to experience the sighted world and writing nonfiction was my chance to let people know what my life is like as a blind person. And I was really just as surprised, I think, as everybody else when Emma just became my blind character. I wasn't expecting it at all. And I started thinking, okay, how can I make her story different than mine? And I thought to myself, what if she goes blind much later in life? And what if there's an accident that she feels really guilty about, even though it absolutely is not her fault? And she has to figure out a way of being in the world after her best friend's death. And so these three things kind of came together in a perfect storm. And through taking Jared's class and John's class, I started working on this project in both of these classes. And as a result of this, the next thing I knew, I had 60 pages done. And I remember talking with friends and professors and saying, I can't stop writing this. I don't know what to do because I can't write essays right now. This is the only thing I'm doing. And Everybody was so supportive and encouraging me to consider changing my genre. And granted, this was April of 2022. Like this was not something that I had thought was going to happen. If you had told me that I was going to switch my thesis right before my third year, I would have said absolutely not because I'm (laughs) such a planner. That was just unimaginable to me. But I think you have to follow your heart as a writer. And my heart has really been tied up in this novel. And so I said, I'm going to pursue this all the way. And so once I made the official switch to a YA novel as my thesis, I really said to myself, okay, what do I need to do now? Not just to finish the book, but, or I'm sorry, not just to finish the thesis, but to finish the book, the actual manuscript. And so for about four months, I just wrote and I found myself really excited about writing a blind character in a way that I didn't think I ever would be because Emma popped into my head as a fully realized person with desires and with opportunities and with frustrations that felt different than my own, but that I felt I could understand as a completely blind person. And I have known many people who 
lost their vision later in life. And I have seen up close and personal that experience of going through that grieving process. And so I felt like I could render that on the page as honestly as I could, even though it's not an experience that I've had. Well, you mentioned that you'd always wanted to write a YA novel. So I'm curious why you thought this was the moment. Like, why did you think the YA forum would work best for the story? That's a great question. I think I'm really, really interested in the teenage experience. I loved being a teenager. I thought it was so fun. I had a great time. And I think, you know, I I read YA. I mean, I read so much young adult. And I am really excited by the push toward diversity in the genre right now. And I think for a little while, it didn't really occur to me to be bothered by the fact that there's not a story that I can think of that features a blind protagonist written by a blind writer. I just thought it was life. And I said, well, it's okay because I have my blind identical twin and we're more embedded in the sighted world than we were in the blind world in some cases in the sense that we, of course, went to blindness, blindness related things and had one foot in that door. But we also went to a high school where we were the only two blind students and we were totally fine with that. You know, and our two younger sisters can see, and that's just been our lives. And so I just, I wasn't really looking for a book with a blind protagonist when I was a teenager because I didn't know that I should be, if Mm. that makes any sense at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then it really was later, really in the last year that I started thinking, well, why isn't there this type of book? Because I would have loved reading something like this looking back. And I thought to myself, you know, in writing nonfiction, my aim was to give voice to my experiences growing up completely blind, which have been really, really positive and really, how do I say this? I'm trying to think of how to frame this. I, you know, part of the thing with my nonfiction is I never had enough tension on the page because I just have really joyful stories to share. And there was never a lot of tension. I was, you know, our parents raised my twin and I to believe that we could do anything we set our minds to. And they raised us just like they raised our younger sisters who could see. And so we just grew up thinking that our blindness is normal, which it very much is for us, but in the world, it's not very common. And so I think I realized that I was really in a unique position to write a story that had never really been told before. And if there wasn't a lot of conflict in my life, which is a great thing, it's a wonderful thing, I could create a character in fiction who faced conflicts that I, some of those I have faced and some of those I absolutely have not faced. And so I realized that I was missing an opportunity if I didn't try to tell this story in the young adult form. And I think when you write about a 17 year old and her experiences, 
it's going to be considered young adult in terms of who's going to gravitate toward that book. I hope that people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and up love it as much as young people. But I'm really writing for the 17-year-old girl who is looking for a blind protagonist who feels alone in the world and who doesn't know that there are other people who have experienced what she has and that she can do anything she sets her mind to. That's really who I'm writing for. Well, that's all beautiful. And I can't wait to read it. I'm going to read it as well. And as we mentioned, the novel itself is is your thesis project, which you're working on now in your final year in the MFA program at the University of South Florida, which is a three-year fully funded program located in Tampa, Florida. According to the website, the program offers small classes, dedicated faculty, a lively reading series, and a supportive atmosphere. And I love when programs list out the best things about their program like this on the website because I'm like, okay, let's just go through these one by one and see what it's really like now that I have you here to talk about it. So let's start with small classes. What's the typical workshop size been at USF? So the workshop size has been... It's small, like it says. It's very small. I would say anywhere between 12 to 14. I'm in a workshop right now with 14 of us, and that's probably been my biggest workshop here to date. And it really is so true. Our classes, you know every single person in the class, and by the end of the class, you feel like you have a really intimate view of their work because you've spent a lot of time talking about it and workshopping it. And the classes are really incredible in that way because everybody gets a lot of individualized attention from the faculty and everybody's needs are met by the end of the class. And that's definitely been one incredible thing about this program is that I never felt like I was fighting for space or time with other people. I always felt like no matter what the class or the workshop was, I was getting what I needed from it. Okay. So yeah, the next thing that they mention is dedicated faculty. So have you found in your time at USF that the creative writing faculty has been available and dedicated to improving your writing? Absolutely. And even so my MFA experience has been strange in some ways because I started in the fall of 2020 And my first year was completely virtual, which I was really disappointed about because I was so looking forward to the in-person experience. But I say this to say that even though we were completely virtual, the faculty made themselves available for anything and everything that I needed. And it could be anything from I'm having a really hard time with this essay to uh, like if I was struggling to approach a teaching question, for example, I could even talk to the faculty about that and they were incredibly helpful. So absolutely. I mean, they are some of the most dedicated people that I've ever met. They're truly here to make sure that we all succeed in our writing and to meet our goals. And I use my thesis as an example because I was a year into working with my nonfiction thesis director. And when I had to make the switch and I had to change directors and form a new committee, I was met with unwavering support down the line. And everybody just kept emphasizing that 
this was a project that they were so excited about and they wanted to see me succeed with it. And I felt just really invigorated by that support. Everybody truly is looking out for the best interests of me as a student. And I feel like I've met writers in all of these faculty who are going to really champion me and cheer me on throughout my career. And that's been absolutely invaluable. So the the next thing that they mention on the website is that there is a lively reading series. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I can. I'm actually reading this week. Oh, awesome. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I feel like I can speak a little bit less to this because COVID, unfortunately, really made this tricky. We had a reading series that was online our first year, and that was really great. It was not the same as being in person, but it was still such a great way for us all to come together and be together in a virtual space on Friday afternoons on Microsoft Teams. And that was my first year. And then this year, it's coming back in full force, and it's called the Spoonbill Reading Series. And it's hosted by Julia Coots, who is one of our incredible nonfiction essayists on the faculty. And four or five readers will read at a time. And I feel like if you asked me this next week, I'd be able to speak much more to it because <laughs> I will have done it. But it's going to be great. And we do this about once a month. So I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that sounds great. I mean, I, I feel like those kind of events like that, especially those like reading events are a really good way to build community. So have you felt like there's like a strong sense of community in the program as well between you and the other students? Oh, absolutely. I've met some of my best lifelong friends in this program. I feel like I've been so, so, so lucky because when you are in a graduate program and you're writing a book, it's been absolutely invaluable and incredible to be able to lean on my friends and say, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to finish this and to have them all say, yes, you are. Or, oh my gosh, I have so much grading to do. Can we get together and just knock it out and get it done? And to feel like we can have hangouts on Friday nights where we all just have dinner and some drinks and just catch up or, you know, whatever the case may be. I do feel like I've built such a strong sense of community. We all really support each other. We cheer each other on. We want to see each other succeed. I have a wonderful writing group who I've met through the MFA program and we trade pages and they see my draft at its roughest and my draft at its best. So in that way, absolutely. And I think it's also important to say we all get equal funding. There are nine slots available for graduate teaching assistants and we're all teaching and writing while we're in the program. And that has been really just incredible and invaluable to my growth as a person and as a writer and as a scholar. And then finally, the last thing that they mentioned was a supportive atmosphere. So just listening to you talk, it sounds like the program itself is pretty supportive, but have you felt supported in your time at USF just from the school as a whole? I have. It's, you know, USF is a really big school, which I did not know before I came. <laughs> I actually was, it was pretty interesting. I did not get to visit before I committed because of COVID. So I was really going in completely blind in more ways than one. And I just feel like I've been very supported. And I'm really glad that the MFA program 
and that the English program is as communal as we are because I don't know that it would be easy if that support was not coming directly from the MFA program. I think that this is a really big school, but being part of the MFA program has made me feel like it's much smaller than it actually is, if that makes sense. Yeah, a little bit more navigable, I guess. Absolutely, because it definitely is huge. There's, I would say about across the three campuses, I think there's about 60,000 students. It's a lot of us. So, and that's, you know, undergrads and grad students, but I really feel so fortunate that the MFA program and the English department do a great job at communicating with us and letting us know that the faculty is always there for us because that's really, really been true. And you mentioned a few other things before the interview that I wanted to give you the chance to talk about. And one is that the program seems to encourage the exploration of various genres. Apparently, students may stick to one genre or across genres and take classes in fiction, poetry, memoir, essay, and comics. So how has this emphasis on hybrid genres affected your writing? Oh my gosh, it's been absolutely incredible. This is why I started writing a young adult novel, because before I applied to the MFA program, I did not really know that I would be able to write a young adult novel. It was something that I had wanted to do, but I didn't know that it was something that I was going to be given the opportunity to do. And through taking all these different classes, I realized that I really had to tell this story in this way at this moment. And I have also had the opportunity to take poetry classes, which has made my nonfiction much better because in poetry, you have to be pretty economical with your word choices and with line breaks and where you end a sentence or a line. And that's something that's made my essay so much better, even though I would be the first person to tell you that I'm not a poet in any way. Um, I, I think that I am a better writer for having stretched myself outside of my comfort zone in these ways. And then, of course, right now, I'm in a craft of fiction class that is so incredible that I go home at night and instead of going to sleep like I probably should, I start tinkering with my novel and revising it because I'm learning so much from Jake Wolf, who has just joined our faculty this year. And I feel so lucky that I've gotten to work with him and with John Fleming, who has just been such a champion in my work, and with Jared Rosello, who has this incredible wealth of knowledge about novels and what actually is something that, you know, kids are super interested in reading because he has this whole knowledge of children's literature that I just don't really have access to. And so it's been absolutely incredible. And then, of course, working with Heather Sellers and Julia Coots has been incredible because Dr. Sellers is incredible at teaching us about all the concepts that you need to tell a really, really compelling story that is more leaning into traditional memoir. And Julia is a essayist and a poet. And so she's thinking about language in different ways as well. And so it's just been, I feel like through working with every single person on this faculty, I have learned so much about who I am 
as a writer, I, I think, you know, taking Natalie Center Zapico's political poetry class just taught me a lot about writing things that maybe I didn't think I could say or write, you know, and, and thinking about how we use language to make change and to speak to social justice and to really like tap into a different experience in a different world. And so I think through having the opportunity to take this huge variety of classes with these experts in the field, I have just come to realize that it's through stretching myself out of my comfort zone that I have become the writer that I currently am. Yeah, my program was an interdisciplinary creative writing program as well. So I, even though I'm a fiction writer, I got to take classes in nonfiction and poetry. And there's also options for screenwriting and playwriting. And it was always interesting to take those classes and just see the ways that it affected my fiction in, in ways that I didn't expect going into it. Absolutely. I think it really does. And I think, you know, I would not have written Emma and all of her family and friends if I had not taken Jared's class and John's class at the same time and had not been at the same time kind of trying to write about my life as a blind person. Those three things came together to just create a perfect storm in which I really said, let's go all the way with this and see what happens. And I really, I have to shout out my family too, because they are just incredible and supportive and really from day one. And I, when I said, I think I'm going to write a young adult novel instead of an essay collection, they were like, that's great. We can't wait to read it and have been my champions since day one. So I feel so fortunate to have the support that I've had. You also told me that the program takes teacher training very seriously, and they're one of the few programs in the country to offer training in creative writing pedagogy. So what classes have you taught in your time in the program, and how important was this teacher training for you? Oh my gosh. So the creative writing pedagogy practicum was absolutely influential in my development as a teacher. I had the opportunity to teach narration and description, which is basically our intro to creative nonfiction and fiction and poetry. And through the creative writing pedagogy practicum, I got to design a dream course that I've always wanted to teach while also figuring out what I was going to teach the next semester, which ended up being intro to creative writing or narration and description. And I came out of that class with a teaching portfolio and with a diversity statement and a syllabus and a pedagogy statement and all the things that you need to apply for a professor job, essentially. Whenever the novel gets published, that'll be the, the final piece of that puzzle. So I say all of that to say that the creative writing pedagogy practicum was incredibly helpful and instrumental in this process because when I started, I had absolutely no idea how to build a teaching portfolio for a college classroom. And now I know how to design a course and goals and objectives and outcomes for students. And I know how to create assignments that measure outcomes so that students know exactly what they're being asked to do. None of this will be possible without Heather Sellers and her dedication, her time and her wisdom in teaching us all these different things in that practicum. I also 
I don't know what I'm teaching yet in the spring, but I also have taught many composition classes in my time at USF. And we really are lucky in the sense that we have a practicum for those as well. And so USF really trains its grad students to teach and to be pretty conscientious teachers, which I think is super important for our students. But in terms of the creative writing department, the pedagogy practicum has been instrumental in my development. Well, before we go, I want to ask you the same thing I've been asking other guests this season, which is what is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? You know, I think for me, I'll answer this in two different ways. The most obvious thing that is coming to my mind at this moment is that my first year was completely virtual. And that was a very different experience than I was expecting because, of course, we never, ever could have known that COVID-19 would upend the world for a year, essentially. And then even though we were virtual for a year, I still felt so fortunate to be in community with these writers and these faculty because they just made it as wonderful as they possibly could, even though the circumstances were really, really challenging. I would also say that I feel like it's been different in the sense that it's solidified not only that I can write a full book, but that I have many more in me. And I think that that's really comforting because when I first started, I was a little nervous about, oh my gosh, you know, I I have this one idea for an essay collection and then what happens after that? What am I going to do? And now I have at least two more things that I am really looking forward to pursuing. And it's also just solidified for me how much I love teaching and the fact that I want my life's work to be as a creative writing professor. And that's that's the career that I believe that I'm meant to have. And I am going to do everything in my power to further my students' lives and opportunities as I've been fortunate to have done for me. Well, Nikki, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. I have been this has been absolutely incredible and I've been so excited to get to talk to y'all and to just get to sing the praises of the USF MFA. And I just want to say to anybody out there that is listening, nobody makes it alone as a writer. And one of the best things that you can do is to find a community of people that will lift you up and cheer you on. And an MFA program, if you have the time and the financial means and the resources to do it. It's been the highlight of my life. Thank you so much, Nikki.